So firstly, thank you so much for having me. I would like to thank Pablo uh, so much and uh, Garcia and um, thank the society for allowing me this opportunity and thank all of you for coming and, and welcoming me into your beautiful city. Um, I think before I go into the actual talk, I would just like to take two minutes to tell you one thing, a small story about me. So, uh, one of my favorite books is Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, and I don't know if some of you are familiar with it, but one of the main reasons why it's my favorite, because it begins with this chapter called The Attunement. And to follow his lead, I will try to present some sort of attunement to the paper I'm reading. <coughs> so, um, Right now, Islam and women and the understanding of women within Islam have come under a lot of, um, I would say, negative publicity to say the least, if not very violent claims about the nature of Islam and how it treats women. And um, I am not here to clear that image because uh, it's such a big... Um, Let's say it's such a big job, and um, I do not feel qualified to do that. However, I have come as a Muslim woman from a predominantly Muslim country to say and to present the thought of a Muslim thinker from the 12th century and his views on women, which, as you will hopefully see, are so much more enlightened than so many Western or so many present thinkers would say about women. So without further ado, I would go into my um, paper. And it is titled, A Journey Through Wasl and Fasl, Women and Sexual, Sexual Relations in Ibn Arabi's Thought. This is a prophetic saying by Sayyidina Muhammad Three things were made beloved to me in this world of yours. Women, perfume, and the solace of my eye was made in prayer. We, human beings, exist within a world that is characterized by vacillation between connection and separation, between wasl and fasl. This paper attempts to take us on a journey within the Akbarian cosmos to witness women and sexual union as two examples of separation and connection. Sexual union will, not be, pre will be presented as a recurring physical and metaphysical activity that is performed out of love and is pertinent to human existence. But it also allows human beings to rise to the proximity of the divine presence and witness him. Sexual intercourse should be understood as more than an activity that a multitude of human beings engage in on daily basis. It will be investigated as a particular mode of being that presents the duality of lover and beloved, 
Our task is not to dissect its particularities to understand it. Rather, it is to observe its dynamics and get a glimpse of the face of the divine. So before we try to peek into the intimate experience of sexual union, we should begin with understanding the role of desire, which compels us to create this intimate space, because desire is what moves us to be in union with another. And the most powerful way of understanding a concept is through losing it. So, Ibn Arabi tells us of the story of Elias, the prophet who lost his desire. He says, Elias, who was Idris, had a vision in which he saw Mount Lebanon, which is from Lubana, meaning a need, splitting open to reveal a fiery horse with trappings of fire. When he saw it, he mounted it and fell all his lusts fall away from him. Thus he became an intellect without any lust, retaining no link to the strivings of the lower soul. In him, God was transcendent, so he had half the gnosis of God. This is because the intellect by itself, absorbing knowledge in its own way, knows only according to the transcendental and nothing of the immanental. It is only when God acquaints it with his self-manifestation that its knowledge of God becomes complete, seeing him as transcendent when appropriate and perceiving the diffusion of God in natural and elemental forms. So through recounting the story of Elias and his vision on Mount Lebanon, Ibn Arabi ascertains the imperative of lust in acquiring a perfected understanding of God as an utterly transcendent being who is beyond any need of the world while being imminent in every created thing that exists. The story of Elias is a signifier of the catastrophe that could overcome humanity if we forsook our natural desires and lusts. In this story, Ibn Arabi is making a clear statement that lust and its pursuit of fleeting hedonistic pleasures, even though it is considered futile by the intellect, is the more authentic expression of humanity. Furthermore, lust, is the vehicle par excellence that could allow human beings access to the divine realm that inheres within this world. The creation of a dynamic, seamless transition from intellect to desire is that which allows one to be able to have a perfected knowledge of God. Lust moves us, human beings, into action, into achieving absolute unity with our object of desire. It is one of the crucial elements within the human sphere that allows human beings to ex escape their individual alienation. Ibn Arabi provides another example of the crucial role of lust in the story of Mary, Maryam, the holiest of women according to the Quran. He says, when the trusty spirit, which was Gabriel, presented itself to Mary, as a perfectly formed human, she imagined that he was some ordinary man who desired to lie with her. Accordingly, she sought refuge from him in God, totally, 
so that he might rid her of his attentions, knowing that to be forbidden. Thus she attained to perfect presence with God, which is the pervasion of the unseen spirit. Had he blown his spirit into her at this moment, Jesus would have, been, uh, would have turned out too surly to bear because of his mother's state. When he said to her, I am only the messenger of your Lord, come to give you a pure boy, her anxiety subsided and she relaxed. It was at that moment that he blew Jesus into her. <coughs> Thus did desire pervade Mary. The body of Jesus was created from the actual water of Mary and the notional water, seed of Gabriel, inherent in the moisture of that blowing, since the breath from the vital body is moist owing to the element of water in it. In this way, the body of Jesus was brought into being from a notional and actual water, appearing in mortal form because of his mother's being human and the appearance of Gabriel in human form, since all creation in this human species occurs in the usual way. So before one tries to penetrate this tightly knit and perilous intellectual cosmos, where the story of Mary is reconstructed and reinterpreted in a way that breaches the normality of Orthodox Christianity and Islam, it is interesting to observe one thing that intrigued me. Despite the fact that in the original Arabic text of Fusus, when telling the story of Mary and Elias, Ibn Arabi used the word shahwa in both contexts. Shahwa could be translated as either desire or lust. The translation, however, opted for using lust in association with Elias and desire in relation to Mary. I think that the discrepancy in the different translation is quite telling. And it is quite telling of the enormity of the project that Ibn Arabi undertook in trying to counter the orthodox narrative related to Mary, the holiest of women. The intricacy of this narrative, I believe, and in my opinion, its richness, emanates from removing the stigma of profanity from women who engage in sexual union by having the holiest of women engage in sexual encounter that produced the word of God. It is an attempt to abolish the idea that one needs to be absolved from his or her sexual identity to be pious, which in return eliminates the imaginary dividing line drawn by religious orthodoxy to separate religion from human sexuality as two mutually exclusive spheres that can only meet to collide. To return to the details of the narrative regarding Mary, one notices that when she first found Gabriel in her room, she thought that he was a man who desired her sexually and so she sought refuge in God from him. In seeking refuge in God, she elevated her human nature to be in complete union with God, in a state that is above mortal desire, i.e., she was in the same state Elias, 
who lost his lust and could only have knowledge of transcendence. <coughs> this is why Ibn Arabi said, had he blown his spirit into her at that moment, Jesus would have turned out too surly to bear because of his mother's state. Because in attaining union with the transcendent attributes of God, she became transcendent. And if Jesus would have come at this moment, he would have attained the attribute of transcendence. While to achieve his function as a prophet to his people, he had to carry transcendence within imminence, i.e., to be the word of God incarnate in flesh. So when Gabriel informed her that he was sent by God to give her a pure boy, noting that he didn't deny that he will have a sexual encounter with her, she descended from the station of transcendence to the station of imminence, and she was pervaded by desire. The lust that pervaded Mary allowed her to be a messenger that carried the God's word physically. This type of lust is different from the, the one she, sought, she thought Gabriel had in the beginning of their encounter. It allowed her to contemplate God and behold the physicality of his word in the form of a procreation of a human being. In the in intimacy of her sexual union rather than shield her from God. The lust that she was apprehensive of in the beginning of her meeting with Gabriel is a lust that is functional in nature. It aims at the momentary fulfillment of physical desire, paying no heed to intercourse, being a medium for witnessing the divine. In this way, it was revealed that Mary, within the Ecbarian realm, is a saint, who is only able to fulfill her destiny to be a carrier of God's word through releasing her hold on transcendent abstinence and embracing her own femininity in the occasion of intercourse, in absolute union with the other. This abolished the perceived rift between holiness and human sexuality to prove that human beings have the opportunity within sexual union to transcend their finitude and gaze upon God, the infinite being. We move further to discuss feminine-masculine dichotomy as a cosmological but also ontological principles. So firstly, I must stress the fact that for Ibn Arabi, feminine doesn't simply denote a biological and sexual truth. It rather refers to an ontological being, to man, woman, a cosmological principle, and an epistemological state of receptivity that is related to the feminine. Sometimes the word feminine refers to one of those meanings and sometimes the three concepts become so intertwined that it becomes excruciatingly difficult to discern which notion is being used. To demonstrate the parallelism between the cosmological and ontological in the feminine-masculine relations, Ibn Arabi says, a woman in relation to man is like nature in relation to the divine command. Since the woman is the locus for existence of the entities for children, 
just as nature in relation to the divine command is the locus of manifestation for the entities of the corporeal bodies. Through nature, they are engendered, and from it, they become manifest. There can be no command without nature, and no nature without command. The interdependence between masculine and feminine exists not only on the ontological realm, where they both need each other for purposes of procreation, but also on the cosmological realm, where the divine command is being likened to the masculine and nature to the feminine. The codependence between masculine and feminine elements for reproductive purposes signify a need for the inhering difference between the sexes, as well as their utter need to unite because of, not despite of, their difference. It isn't the case that each sex ex coexists along, uh, alongside the other, tolerating the other's existence. It is the case that each sex's existence depends on the other, whether it is on the ontological or cosmological spheres. In Arabi, towards the end of the quote, enunciates this necessity. Moreover, it's worthy to note that when Ibn Arabi made the analogy between women and nature and men and the divine command, he was accentuating a particular aspect of femininity and masculinity. Namely, for him, femininity is co correlated with receptivity, while masculinity is related to agency. However, for Ibn Arabi, receptivity isn't equated with passivity. The higher degree and active agency which are attributed to masculinity are due to a temporal priority of masculinity over femininity, simply because masculinity precedes femininity. The divine command is prior to the engenderment of things in nature. In the Quran, it says, be, and it is, kun fayakun. Likewise, Adam was created before Eve. Thence, one could say that the hierarchical structure of the masculine being placed above the feminine is one that holds temporal value rather than ontological or cosmological value. To allocate differential ontological or cosmological values to either is to misunderstand Ibn Arabi's writings. The belated arrival of the feminine, whether cosmologically or ontologically, was to create an impenetrable circle of life through complementing masculinity with its complete other, which it contained in the most primordial setup. The relationship between masculine and, masculine and feminine isn't one of instrumentality. Rather, it is one of unity where each is drawn to the other because of the apparition of a memory prior of prior unity that undermines this duality. Moreover, one could deduce that feminine and masculine duality suffuse various spheres of existence. Consequently, it would be safe to claim that the sheer permeation of this dichotomy indicates that feminine and masculine could be considered as modes of being rather than static archetypes for gender relation, 
which means that the being could interchangeably navigate from one mode to the other, be either feminine or masculine, irrespective of the actual sex he or she identifies with. In that sense, Ibn Arabi would be presenting his readers with a fluid concept of gender that doesn't hinge on biological difference. It actually unshackles gender from its biological particularities that could stifle it and affect its interaction with the other. The freedom to flow from one sex to the other does not mean that one isn't grounded in a in an originary sexual identity, whether male or female. Because if this were the case, each individual would be independent from the other, and hence the hermetic circle of life would be broken. The need and desire, which signify the economy of exchange between feminine and masculine, exist because this exchange occurs through the vehicle of love. So we move further to explore the intricate space of yearning between feminine and masculine. We need to see what this love looks like, what this motivation to come together in this organic unity of this primordial existence is attained through sexual union. So within the expansiveness of the space of yearning, the feminine and masculine seek each other out to unite in every possible way so that they would, they would reverse the feeling of alienation that overcome them. To fathom the underlying reasons for this feeling of alienation and separation, one must go to the very beginning, to the origination of man and woman, to witness the birth of desire in their story. So Ibn Arabi tells us, then God drew forth from him, that is man, a being in his own image called woman. Because she appears in his own image, the man feels a deep longing for her as something yearns for itself, while she feels longing for him as one longs for that place to which one belongs. Thus, women were made beloved to him, Prophet Muhammad wasallam, for God loves that which he created in his own image and to which he made his angels prostrate in spite of their great power, rank, and lofty nature. From that stem the affinity between God and man and the divine image is the greatest, most glorious, and perfect example of affinity. That is because it is a syzygy that polarizes the being of reality, just as woman, by her coming into being, polarizes humanity, making of it a syzygy. In this description, one finds remnants of the same reciprocity that was described in relation to the divine and cosmos archetypes for lover and beloved. Man and woman both yearn and move towards each other recollecting the the androgynous prototype of the human being they once were. The feeling that man has towards woman is one of lack, where the whole yearns for its parts, while woman's feeling towards man is that of being severed from her origin, her home. Man signifying home for a woman 
marks a reversal from the Western philosophical understanding where women were associated with whom ever since the Aristotelian segregation between the public and private realms, where man belonged to the public realm and woman belonged to the private realm, to the home. Later on, a philosopher like Lavinin capitalized on the foundational difference constituted by Aristotle of the place each sex occupies, i.e. that the feminine belongs to the private realm while the masculine belongs to the public realm, to encapsulate the role of the feminine in creating the abode of the self, where she is instrumental, she is very important, in effecting an opening and preparing the subject to respond to the call of the face of the other. Levinas says, and the other, whose presence is discreetly in absence, with which is accomplished the primary hospitable welcome which describes the field of intimacy, is the woman. The woman is the condition for recollection, the interiority of the home, the inhabitation. The feminine, in Levinas's philosophy, allows the self to see the other. The feminine breaks the solipsistic carapace of the hedonistic self. Even though the feminine alters the perception of subject by introducing the, sub the notion of alterity which she embodies, the woman in Levinas's philosophy is different. It's completely different. She doesn't belong to the public realm. She creates the home, the abode, the private sphere. Although Western culture is usually correlated with the emancipation of women, one could argue that some remnants of the Aristotelian distinction about the place of women survived through expressions of modern thought. Furthermore, it can be argued that women in Western culture were emancipated from the physical, architectural construct of the home. Yet her presence in the public realm is still met with a sense of subdued hostility. I mean, to give some examples, I mean, the, the pervasive understanding of the sexual violence and sexual harassment against women that has been brought up to light in sort of the recent uh, news, uh, the wage gap, domestic violence, all those things, I believe, sort of emanate from a deep-seated um, lack of acceptance of women's presence in the public realm. It comes, I believe, back to Aristotle, to the understanding that a woman does not belong to the public sphere. She belongs to the private sphere. So there were certain efforts that are very much manifest those days that would say, yes, I mean, on the face of it, people accept women in the public realm. However, in that acceptance, there is a lot of hostility that cannot be articulated very much to a woman, but can be very much felt in different, in different ways, such as, as I said, I mean, sexual harassment, uh, the, the, the wage gap, other, other forms also. 
But I believe that this actually comes back to this understanding of women being associated with the home. So this actually, women belonging to the home, stands at complete odds with what Ibn Arabi has said. Because for Ibn Arabi, man, the masculine, is the home. Right? So, and in that, even though Ibn Arabi's association emanates and comes from an archaic, a very old, theomythical story of creation of Adam and Eve, he presents the feminine and masculine as an organic dual who desire each other with the same intensity. Women, in Ibn Arabi's reading of the story, do not reach out to men due to society's patriarchal structure that inform her that her public presence isn't welcome. Women and men both seek with vehemence a unity that fulfills their original teleology. Man loves and moves in desire to approach a woman because she was created in his own image. So he moves towards himself to know and love himself. This, as Ibn Arabi explains, is the same movement of desire that God has towards man, who was created in his own image. Man's coming into existence dissected the originary unity of God and nothing with him to God and everything other than him. Likewise, the creation of a woman has marked the dissection in the unity that existed when it was only man. For this reason, God's love for humanity is parallel to man's love to a woman. It is the love, desire, and yearning to achieve total union with the self as reflected in the mirror of its complete other. The motivation to come together out of love in the organic unity of this primordial existence is attained in the physical realm through sexual intercourse. Ibn Arabi says, When a man loves a woman, he seeks union with her, that is to say, the most complete union possible in love. And there is, in the elemental sphere, no greater union than that between the sexes. It is precisely because such desire pervades all his part, all his parts, that man is commanded to perform major ablution. Thus, the purification is total, just as his annihilation in her was total in the moment of consummation. God is jealous of his servant that he should find pleasure in any but him, so he purifies him by the ablution, so that he might once again behold him in the one he was annihilated, since it is none other than he, God, whom he sees in her. The act of consummation, as it is described by Ibn Arabi, entails the complete relinquishing of the self and giving it over to the other, not as a gift given willingly, but in the yoking of the masculine-feminine divide within the milieu of absolute union. In the height of the orgasmic frenzy, the self sheds away its pretense of purity and solitude, to be annihilated in the sexual act. It is made conscious of the lack that is innate and demands union with its partner. Within the union of feminine and masculine, an intimate space opens up. 
a space that is both creative and interpretive. Creative because it's productive, i.e. in procreation, that's the most basic understanding of creation, and interpretive because in this communal horizon of intermingling feminine, masculine, identities are constantly reinterpreted rather than abolished. The interaction between them can be described as dialogical rather than dialectical, since their yoking, there is no hegemony of one certain sex over the other. Within this act, there is no overpowering of one sex of the other. There is this magnification of each sex. The interaction can be qualified as complementary rather, rather than one that eliminates the difference. Being enmeshed in the fleeting orgasmic pleasure compels one to come to him and or herself as a self-interpreting being. It brings focus and centrality to the question, who am I? Within the bewilderment of sexual ecstasy. Ibn Arabi explicates that the pleasure one experiences is the pleasure of encountering the divine. Yet, since it is God's nature to be jealous, he instructs human beings to perform major evolution, meaning that we are being instructed to gather ourselves from the devastating and ecstatic activity to resort back to him, within whom we were made to feel this pleasure. This is a moment of convergence between the physical and metaphysical spheres described by Ibn Arabi where physical union between a man and a woman alludes to a higher union which allows for a new creation and signifies the direct connection between humanity and divinity. Within sexual union occurs an intimation of tra transient eternity in the moment of orgasm. Sex tries to approximate an experience of eternity through superseding its finitude. And this isn't accomplished through the obliteration of sexual difference. Contrarily, the, experiences, the experience present, uh, presences the androgynous being that is constituted through this union and echoes of the originary anthropos that once dwelled in the infinity of the metaphysical sphere. And this anthropos is necessarily constituted through both sexes. The space that Ibn Arabi is talking about is one that doesn't serve as temporary triumph over sexual uh, alienation. It is a space that surmounts human alienation in general, allowing human beings to contemplate the divine within human form, as it is drawn on the spiritual canvas created in this moment. Yet, one can't claim that each person who is sexually active has an awareness of the nuances inherent in Ibn Arabi's description of sexual union. Ibn Arabi describes the few who possess this awareness as follows. The marriage act of the possessor of this station is like the marriage act of the people of the garden, strictly for appetite. Since it is the greatest self-disclosure of God, However, it is hidden from mankind and jinn, except in the case of those of God's servant whom he singles out. In the same way as the marriage act of the beasts is strictly for appetite. 
Many of the Gnostics have remained oblivious of this reality since it is one of the mysteries grasped only by a few of God's people of solicitude. Within marriage is found complete nobility, denoting the weakness, love, that is worthy of servanthood. There is something of the severity of enjoyment, qahr al-ladha, that annihilates the person from his strength and his claims. It is a delicious severity, for severity precludes taking enjoyment in it for the one who is overcome by it, since enjoyment of severity is one of the specific characteristics of the one who is sever. Its enjoyment is not a characteristic of the one who is overcome by it with the single exception of this act. To reflect on this very unusual passage is to marvel upon a picture that draws with painstaking details the authenticity of the human condition. In this passage, Ibn Arabi narrates the conflicting forces which are at work within every human being. The need to have control, to lose control, to attain pleasure, to conquer one's desires, and to be in a state of utter confusion. The complexity of human beings when placed in the milieu of sexual union produces the spiritual canvas that Ibn Arabi drew on. In inspecting this canvas, we move closer to inspect its composite elements. He begins with the acknowledgement of the ignorance of some of the most knowledgeable, i.e. the Gnostics, of the sublime beauty of sexual intercourse as a vehicle of openness that allows the perceiver to completely indulge in the orgasmic ecstasy offered by this union without any heed of procreation. Then he further dives into human psychology by admitting that the state of oppressiveness that human beings encounter is a state that usually brings feelings of dismay and desperation. No one likes to be oppressed or to feel under, I mean, to lose control. Because this state prevents human beings from claiming control over their lives. Oppressiveness or severity is disliked, to say the least, since it presences feeling of futility and rejection and helplessness. That is, except in sexual intercourse. The severity felt in intercourse conjures feelings of weakness, but also the tantalizing ecstasy of pleasure that alleviates sadness, that can overwhelm a person when he or she feels weak. Thus, the disparity of the two intense feelings blends in harmony to actualize an originary servanthood that is authentic towards, that is authentic towards lordship of something much more powerful than our usual fake hold of our lives. Consequently, sheer sexual pleasure, according to Ibn Arabi, permits true servanthood to push itself to the foreground of human minds and usher the way to contemplating the divine. So in the end, after going through this journey, I find us human beings in a very peculiar and very perplexing place. On the one hand, we are trapped neither in complete separation nor in utter connection. 
but interchangeably navigating through both states without repose in either. Sexual union as a movement that is performed out of love aims to alleviate the feeling of alienation through a deep connection established with a partner. Yet, since it is a temporal movement, the pleasure of orgasm dissipates to leave behind a trace of a connection, but also reinforces, as soon as it is over, the feeling of separation. Sexual union in Ibn Arabi's work illustrates a different conception. It is a union that harbors the physical and metaphysical spheres in a moment of orgasmic pleasure that endures through the perception of his face, the face of the divine. Thank you so much. <laughs>